0: Wow, the monitors don't even work and they're feeding back. That's amazing. It's running me a stereo, so here's the uh here, here. let's let's do it properly. Hey, it's Ryan Mysterioso. I hope uh, this is working. And uh, our guest, uh, as promised, is yeah, there's a, there's a very unprofessional uh, fading. Is uh, Chris O'Brien? Uh, Chris, can you hear me? Uh-oh. There we go. Can I turn that off. Can you hear me? Yep. Oh, wow, that sounds great. As well it should, since we're using Skype. Um, and it, uh, it's my broadcasting mic. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. I forgot to turn my uh, bass up on mine so that I sound like more like a uh, radio show person and uh, less like a uh, geeky person doing a podcast or whatever they're called. Um, and I don't even know if I should introduce Chris. He's been, I think, I think you still have the record for the most amount of Mad appearances on Radio Mysterioso. Wow, cool. And uh, the Chris is author of many, 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 many books, uh, and you know what they are: uh, Mysterious Valley, Enter the Valley, Return of the Son of the Valley, and uh, <laughs> 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 the Incredible Shrinking Valley, uh, and uh, the Amazing Colossal Valley, right? And um, uh, Stalking the Trickster is a great book, and then. Most recently, the book we 're going to talk about, probably mostly until we get sidetracked like we do, which is yeah, fine. we always do yeah well that 's what this show's about. Um, should be called radio sidetrack, uh, the newest one is um, uh, stalking the herd, and as i 've described it on the uh, pre show whatever introduction or the uh, notice that went up is uh, it may be the definitive book on the uh, cattle mutilation phenomenon until. I see any challengers. I saw one review up on Amazon. The guy just was like the guy went ape shit on it. He loved it.
2: Yeah. Um well, I'm surprised I, uh, there's you know, we don't have more reviews up, but it's a big book, so it might take people a while to get through it, digest it.
0: Yeah. Uh have you had any reaction from anybody that hadn't read it while you were writing it or, you know, pre-release?
2: Um yeah, I have actually. Um Richard Dolan chimed in, you did, Rosemary Ellen Guiley, Brad Steiger, Nick Redfern, they all uh it, of course your your forward uh was really well received and and I did get some pre uh some pre sort of reviews and kudos for it from uh the before mentioned investigators, which I really I really value their insight and enjoy their work. So I, I'm 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 hoping that, uh, others will find it as compelling as, uh, is, you know, as they did.
0: Well, I did. It's, um, everything's in there. I mean, like I said in the introduction, there's, um, there's no stone left unturned and there's nothing, there's no prejudice in the book about anything. Everything is examined pretty much equally, um, I didn't. You know, Chris, when I, I asked you if you'd come on the show and um, I've been at work most of the time, I was at, I was at work for eight hours today. That was nice. Um, and uh, I didn't write any questions down because I figured, one, I know you, two, I've read the book, right. three, we'll talk about whatever we want to, even though I'm going to call the interview Stalking the Herd because um, you're doing interviews. for the, How many interviews have you done so far for the book?
2: Well, I've I've done I don't know probably ten and this week is really packed. I've got probably another dozen uh, ending with coast to coast with George Knapp on uh, a week from tonight. Oh, cool! You're on with Knapp. Yeah. Did you swing
0: it that way or did it? Uh, that just yeah,
2: I've I've been on what uh, I think two or three times and always with uh, with George Knapp. Uh, I just find his uh, his knowledge and. His no nonsense kind of you know ask tough questions approach uh, I think better suits my particular likes and dislikes from a radio host uh, not to slag uh, George Norrie and and Ian and others who who have been on the show over the years but but George George and I kind of come from this from the same I, I think from the same place in terms of really trying to be brutally objective about things and. And not really hyping up particular elements of a of a given story or subject, and I just find him uh, to be his questions. I think are, are more uh, thought out, and and he doesn't just kind of sit back and and nod his head and go, "Well, that's interesting. Uh, tell us more." You know, <laughs> he, he, no, he, he he actively
0: listens to you. Yeah. yeah.
2: Yeah, he's, he's good. He's very good. He's uh, one of the top journalists we have in the Southwest, so uh, I, I, I'm i honored to be on with him.
0: Yeah. At some point, uh, if I write something else, I would love to go uh, be uh, interviewed by uh, Knapp. uh I feel the same way that you do. I mean, he, he actively listens. He'll stop you and say, hey, wait a second. He won't say, you're full of shit. He'll just say, <laughs> explain yourself here or, you know. This doesn't make any sense to you know. Uh, this isn't making any sense to me, and you know. Whereas some of the other hosts would probably just let it slide; they just let you go. Yeah, exactly. Because they're yeah, he, No, I, he
2: really listens, and yeah. and if and he wants if to know, does, he's a journalist. That's why he's a journalist. Exactly, exactly, exactly. And I, I, i like you, Greg, you're you're very much that way. And I've, I've always said that you're. This is my favorite show to be on besides the Paracast. Um, in, in terms of being a guest, this is uh, you know, this I. I just I I love it when when the two of us sit down, whether it's on the air or off the air, I just really feel like you're the kind of person that uh, can appreciate the amount of work that goes into some of these subjects that we discuss. And, uh, you know, I'm I may come across sometimes as, uh, you know, a little true believer ish on on the Paracast. But, uh, you know, I, I do ask tough questions and I don't I don't accept uh, things at face value and you don't either. We're always trying to look kind of around the curtain and, you know, into the box from outside of it. So I really do appreciate that.
0: Yeah. Well, the other thing is I'm not going to interview people. One, I'm not interested in. (laughs) Right. Yeah. And two, that's like, you know, why don't you interview this person? It's just, you know, he has this great idea about so-and-so. Well, I'm not interested in that. Or like or number two was, you know, why don't you take so-and-so to task? And it's like, because I'm not learning anything from that person. You know, whoever it might. I can't even think of anybody right now. But like if somebody asked me if I wanted to interview, say, I don't know, uh, let me just pick on him again. Sean Morton. No, I don't want to interview him because there's nothing he says that I want to talk about. And on top of that, if people don't you know, if it isn't obvious to most people that are really into the subject and really trying to find. I don't know about answers, but, um, you know, are, are trying to educate themselves. That's not a person they're going to go to. No. Whereas, you know, Nick would be or, or you would be or or Bob Ebenegger, for that matter, or somebody that's really smart, like Bob Ebenegger that nobody talks to that has all kinds of great stories and right. provides, you know, a different kind of perspective. Um, right. That's the kind of stuff. Did you ever hear when I was on with him? And the, I talked to him one time for half the show just about his songwriting career. <laughs> oh, you're kidding. No, I missed that one. Oh, my God. <laughs> he wrote a bunch of novelty songs <laughs> and he wrote all the songs that were used on the Lance Link Secret Chimp show.
2: <laughs> oh there's a little there's a little bit of arcana for you i love yeah.
0: it and he wrote he wrote a um a, a novelty song about halloween and i can't like merv griffin or somebody saying it i can't remember but oh, no kidding i, I played know it know on the show writer. and he was amazing he goes i haven't heard that since i wrote it in like you know 1968 or whatever it was he was roommates with um um super dave or no no he wasn't new roommates with super dave uh, Steve Martin was roommates with Super Dave, and he knew Super Dave's um, uh, brother. Super Dave's brother is Albert Brooks.
2: Oh, no kidding. Wow. Yeah, it,
0: it's Albert Einstein. Do you know Albert Brooks' real name is Einstein? And his brother's... Oh, uh, you're kidding me? I didn't know that. Yeah, so he knew Albert Brooks. He goes, yeah, I, I was... I was, uh, Or no, he knows Super Dave. He goes, I, I was hanging out with, with uh, Albert Einstein's brother. And I said, Bob, Albert Einstein didn't have a brother. He goes, no, that comedian, you know, Al- oh, he's Albert Brooks, yeah. And so oh, I had
2: no idea. Oh, yeah. So God, I learn something every day.
0: Yeah. And he he told me Steve Martin came to his daughter's wedding because he was he was uh, friends with Super Dave and Albert Brooks. It's <laughs> very strange stories. <laughs>
2: Did he play banjo? I don't know. I think he should have. God, he's a good banjo player. World class.
0: Yeah, we went we went and saw him here. Uh, Sigrid got tickets and we went and saw him at the uh, Pantages Theater here. It was it was a lot of fun. We were like in the fourth row. It was great.
2: Wow, yeah, he's a picker, man. Yeah, from way back, from the early to mid '60s, I think he. Yeah. First started playing professionally.
0: Yeah, he's been doing. Yeah, he's, you know, like you said, world class because he's good at it. He really loves it, and I'm glad they. And you know, he he'd tell jokes in between and all that, and they were. Yeah. It was he was being Steve Martin, and that's fine.
2: Yeah, well, he's got a great band too.
0: Yeah. The was it the deep. What's it called? I can't remember the name of the band.
2: I forget, but I saw a documentary on him, and I, I just was slack-jawed at some of the, you know, some of the tricks he was pulling off on his banjo. I just, wow. It's just very few people in the world can do that.
0: Yeah. All right. We got off the subject here in about 15 minutes.
2: <laughs> Not even.
0: <laughs> Chris. Chris O'Brien. Why did you want to write a book like Stalking the Herd? No, Well, truly, um... I know why you wanted to write it. You just wanted to say, "Look, this is everything I've learned up to now. It's probably, you know, it." it and um, I want people to know it. And maybe, and I this is the reason I kind of put things out there too. Maybe somebody has a perspective on something I didn't know, and by putting yeah. all this information yeah. out there, so is it, I, I guess that was part of your motivation. But what else?
2: Well, you know, because I. I you know, unfortunately, I mean, let's let's get real. I mean, going out and investigating a you know a dead necrotic cow rotting in a field is, <laughs> is probably my least favorite thing to do in life. I, I just I <laughs> I I've, I think I've officially retired from the actual field investigative work. But there's been so much for the last twenty years that I've been involved in this field. There's been so much of this slow slide down into pop culture. Uh, true believerism and and just cliched uh, thinking out there in the public about what, what this uh this whole mystery is about. And and I just needed to provide finally, you know, some sort of organized objective perspective about all this because so many people have such misconstrued sort of pop cultureish uh ideas about what 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 all these slain livestock represent. Uh, you know how they're actually, you know, the actual science and, and crime scene elements uh, behind many of the cases, most of them actually. And I just felt that it was something I needed to get out of my system. It's it's been sticking in my craw for years. People have said, "Oh, you're into the dead cows." Well, is it aliens? And I'm like, "Well, show me one bit of proof that 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 demonstrates uh, that as a as as even a possibility, besides the lights in the sky or." you know, a few, a handful of claims of people seeing uh landed objects and beings, which are very extremely rare and, and I I think tenuous myself. Yeah. And it it just the other thing was that that to be honest with you, Greg, I, I really was the only person that, that could write this book, uh, based on the fact that I'm I'm, you know, connected to the major databases of of all the you know, the, the ins and outs of who, what, when and where, of, of what cow was found, when, where, uh, what were the conditions of, of the animal. There's all these stovepipe databases out there. There's probably a dozen or so of them. And nobody had ever bothered to actually put them down in one place and, and co- coalesce them and collate them together and come up at least with a with a – you know, an overview of what we're dealing with here. Nobody has really established an overview. The only people that have really dove into this have, have their pet theory, and then that, that's all that they promote. Yeah. And they only look at cases that, that conform to that particular theory. And I, I I just feel with any investigative endeavor, that's just doing the public and, and yourself a, a, a great disservice.
0: Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and it's, I don't think the book's going to change that but it will change you know the pop culture aspect of it because there's there's almost nothing that can change that um uh, when producers and people have whatever the agendas they have are involved but um people that are digging into the subject uh want to find out more want to get down to the nitty-gritty of what it is and not just what you see in movies or read on you know 800 websites that are run by people that have their agendas all that um, that's what I think. That's what stalking the herd is for. Is somebody that's, right. that's trying to educate themselves, and like I said a little earlier, if if we're lucky, since you're not going to do it anymore, at least not you know full time and in, in the field, maybe somebody will take it over and use this, have all this data available to them as a, a as a jumping off point. Just like, uh, well, I don't know if you really did. I don't think you did because you're one of the first people that was out there besides Linda Howe. Oh, and I guess Gary well, Massey. Well, no, there, there have been there, there. have been David quite Perkins, quite a Gary of people Massey, people, uh, uh, Tom Adams, those people.
2: Yeah, Tom Adams, Tommy Bland, Peter Jordan, even Bob Pratt got involved oh, yeah, uh, for Peter a while. Peter Jordan, course, that's uh, right. the I think the reigning, uh, padrone of mutology, if you want to call it that, is David <laughs> Perkins, who yeah. helped you know, who's helped me immeasurably uh, over the twenty years that I've been involved in this. David and I are actually. Already uh, working on a follow up book, which is an analysis of this book. Yeah. Uh, Because I didn't, I literally didn't have room to go through a full scale, in depth analysis of the data. Yeah, I remember. This book just presents all the data and then at the end kind of goes into where I think some of the evidence is leaning, which is the monitoring of the environment and MAGCAL and other things. But yeah, we'll get to that. But we needed to get everything out there and also. Look at all the other animals around the world that have been found. There's seals in the Orkney Islands, uh, you know, huge potted dolphins in France, uh, you know, weird-ass cases in the Canary Islands, Puerto Rico, bizarre cases down in South America, uh, some really head-scratching cases from Australia. Of course, the the pervert horse slash- slashers and and sheep mutilations in the UK. Yeah. All this stuff is in there, and I, I really attempted to the best of my ability to 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 give as full an overview as possible without without getting caught up in too much minutia.
0: Yeah. What is, and I always ask this in some form or another, because you started mentioning all these other things that you would put under the purview of mutilations, like the dolphins or um, some other types of animals. What, what was that, and why would you put it in the same category as a, as a, as a quote unquote mutilation?
2: Well, it was over, I think it was over about a six to eight week period. Uh, dolphins were washing ashore, uh, you know, on the beaches of, of Southern France. If I, if memory serves me correct, I don't, I haven't memorized all the details of this, but they all exhibited the same exact kind of wound around their around their what would be the neck area, I guess on a dolphin. And, uh, and several hypotheses were thrown out there the most uh, compelling one was that it was the US Navy killing off dolphins that they had trained and they these collars uh, were like had some self-destruct mechanism these collars that they they would put on them uh, which was one theory that was put forward but it's not by accident that uh, you know almost i think it was uh, upwards of 50 dolphins were found with the identical wounds and and also uh, uh, seals in the Orkney Islands they had these weird Perfectly uh, clean incisions that that were like a candy cane stripe uh, down their body. I have a photograph of one in the book. Uh, you know, the Orkney Islands. I mean, we're talking way up there, almost to the Arctic Circle. I mean, that's way up there in the northern latitudes. And and why these animals would show up with with these particular fairly consistent uh, you know incisions. Uh, is very very puzzling Uh, at least it is to me and i thought at least i should mention it you know
0: the thing is that about um those other animals i don't think that if they you know if they were killed by some sort of human hand or something that wasn't natural quote unquote as a predator um they're they're also unexplained animal deaths and your unexplained animal deaths is are ones that appear to be not natural so that's why you're including the uh Correct. Yeah.
2: And the consistency of the wounds from uh case oh, right, to case. Right. Yeah. Uh that 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 is kind of a telltale sign for me that there's some sort of program or there's something you know, adverse that's happening to these animals, but it's in a systematic kind of fashion and, and I felt that, that, that these cases deserve mention. Uh, just like the horse slashing cases. Uh some in the seventies and, and uh a bunch in the, in the 90s uh in in the UK uh these may have been kind of deviant some of these uh cases uh, also featured uh how would i put this uh deviant sexual uh <laughs> evidence of, de- of sexual deviance uh, which is a little disturbing yeah but um you know again you know, people think that, that that cows are the only only animals found in this condition, and, and it's not true. Almost every warm blooded animal you can you can think of, uh, most mostly plant eaters, herbivores, uh, have been found in this condition. Uh, outside of Africa, in Africa, we have a real lack of of cases, and and also in 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 non Christian countries, for some reason, there seems to be a a real uh, either a lack of reporting. Or a, a, an actual lack of cases, uh, and I find that very intriguing and possibly highly uh, suggestive of some sort of clue that we might have. Uh, you know, why are these animals in Christian countries being being targeted, and not in uh, Asian countries, in India, in Africa, um, and other places around the world that that are predominantly non-Christian?
0: or actually more less meat eating as well or is that does that not hold true
2: that also holds true it's the top meat eating countries that uh feature the most uh you know the largest number of cases um australia uh parts of south america uh obviously the united states canada um, you know parts of western europe uh these are the places that you find uh argentina yeah argentina yeah and brazil Chile. Yeah, which which has a high per capita. I I have a map in the on I think in the first chapter which shows the um, the amount of meat per you know per capita that's eaten, and it's the countries that eat the most meat. I think over a hundred pounds a year that seem to be the countries that have a, a vast majority of the cases.
0: Well, it, you, the first thing people would say when that comes up, and you know what I'm going to say, is because there's more cows there. But are you just it, talking about in general with all warm-blooded animals, or? Uh, there's more of them, or just, you know, just the cows. Because if there's more meat eaters and the and the, the meat is there, it, I guess it's gonna, you know, it's the well, thing is, it's, there's a large field of uh, opportunity.
2: Okay, well here's here's a little factoid. I'll <clears throat> kind of throw a bunch of theories on their heads. Uh, <laughs> yes, India please. is the world's largest exporter of beef. Did India? you know that? India, really? And it's mostly buffalo, but it's identical to beef, so you can call it that. But uh-huh. uh, yeah, yeah, India, India has the has the uh, has the top slot for exporting of uh bovine flesh.
0: <laughs> and it's and and it's mostly but actually it's funny, it'd be some of them would be cows. I guess it's non non Hindu people like uh Muslims or whoever, Christians, whoever are there.
2: Well, yeah, there is. There is uh for instance, there's I think two hundred and seventy seven McDonald's in India, which I didn't know before I wrote <laughs> Uh, and and they serve things like makhalu and uh, 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 you know a big tandoori and it, you know it has these kind of weird Indian yeah. you know, vegetarian dishes and lamb uh, I think in some pork but no yeah. beef dishes huh. and it, it, it's the second most populous country in the world and out of the seventeen thousand McDonald's there's only like two hundred less than three hundred McDonald's in in India so uh, that's kind of interesting to me. The fact that no Brahma cattle have ever been discovered mutilated, and i looked i have looked and looked and looked for years for a single case of a Brahma in any country of course Brahma are the sacred white cows of India which mm-hmm. are you know they're they're they have a different uh, kind of genetic uh development uh, and the breeding of these cattle are different it's it's Bos indicus as opposed to Bas primages genesis genus rather in in Europa, which are the the kinds of, of cattle that have kind of evolved and, and been selectively bred for for beef cattle in the modern era. Yeah. But uh you know the humpback zebu's and the humpback brahmas um have obviously been exported around the world and and there's lots of brahma cattle in the United States. In fact they're one of the the, the most prized of all the bucking bulls in the uh rodeos. Yeah. And to not have a single case of a brahma I I think that's another potential clue that David and I, uh, in the follow-up book, are really going to look into that, and we're really going to scour the, um, you know, the records uh, for any potential cases that might refute that particular statement. But but that could be huge. I mean, the sacred cow of India is not targeted. Uh, I mean that it's literally a sacred cow. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, who knows what it says?
0: And uh, well, you know. it will. I'm sure theories will be forthcoming in the next book. But oh yeah, it it like you said something about bloodline that probably has something to do with it. Maybe they're more or less susceptible to things. Who knows? Do people eat? Is is that a considered a? Do people use it for a beef cow, or is it just not having enough flesh on it?
2: Uh, well, you know, it's not really. It's uh, they use uh, the strain. Um, uh, as, you know, for hybrid animals. Um, yeah. You'll have Brahma bulls, uh, for instance, that'll be introduced into particular strains, but most of the cows, uh, the 99.999% of all mutilated cattle are hybrid animals, mostly Hereford, uh, Angus, Limousine Crosses. Um, yeah. You do have some dairy cattle that have been found mutilated, but the vast majority of cattle are beef cattle, are not uh, dairy cows. And, uh, of course, Brahma's are, are Valued and 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 worshipped as the source of uh, clarified butter in India, almost every you know Hindu ritual starts with clarified ghee. Yeah,
1: um,
2: and you know in in India, I have a picture which kind of baffled me when I discovered it. I have a picture of a a woman wet nursing a baby calf that lost its mother. Huh. I mean, they'll they'll wet nurse with with humans or wet nurse cows in India, and, and they're they have, like, nursing homes for cows in India. It's pretty there's, amazing how how the cattle have been.
0: There's your siren.
2: There we go. Okay, we always have to have one of those.
0: There we go. <laughs> we'll probably have more, but there has to be a uh, the imprimatur of official Radio Mysterio, so guest them by having a uh, siren. I always
2: take particular attention when the sirens go by because what I'm talking about generally means it, uh, <laughs> it might be important. <laughs>
0: um another thing I remember and found fascinating in the book was um, the uh, examination of, uh, you know, there's a whole chapter, I think, on, you know, where do cows come from? What is our relationship to them? what has right. How has that changed over the last few thousand years? What is it now? How does that uh, uh, affect, how, how does it speak to what's going on with the cattle mutilations? Maybe you can give a little, because nobody's ever discussed that before.
2: Well, no, and that's that's part of the problem that I, I feel has been sort of extant in this whole subject area over the last, you know, 30 years is, yeah. you know, everybody kind of pigeonholes this thing as a modern era uh, phenomenon that, you know, everybody forgets that we have a, a very sacred, exalted, ceremonious relationship with bovines that goes back tens of thousands of years, and when you look at some of the earliest urban centers uh for instance in the ne- near east and in the uh, persia in, in areas like that you know 10500 BC uh, uh Kalahuyuk, for instance uh in northern iran or in anatolia and then uh, other uh you know archaeological sites in northern iran show that the 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 bull and the and the cow were worshiped equally and we're at the top end of their uh, religious and spiritual uh, belief systems. And and I do kind of show how the bull worship split off and kind of went to the west, and, and cow worship, or the female of the species, went east. And and I, I think that that's, for some reason, there, there's some some crucial clues there. and But the one thing that I found that just totally blew my mind was two years ago, actually this month, uh, a, a very extensive DNA study was uh, the results were announced, and I think we discussed this on the last time I was on. Every cow on this planet, to in terms of this, the results of this study, have evolved from a herd in northern Iran, ten thousand five hundred BC, of eighty animals. Now, how do you get nine hundred and forty some you know breeds of cattle, all? evolving from a single herd of extinct aurochs uh, were the animals that were were, were captured and, and contained. But I, I just find that totally mind-blowing that 1.37 billion cattle on the planet appear to have all evolved and, and sprang from a single herd of 80 animals. That That's just a mind-blowing fact to me, if it's true.
0: Yeah. Well, it, you you wonder about you know other species. Have you looked into you know any are there progenitor species for you know for gorillas or for uh, certain higher I don't know higher uh, higher mammals and things like that. Who well, knows? Either that I mean, or they're very t- easily how many types hybridized. Of gorillas? You
2: could probably count them on your fingers and toes. Uh, yeah. You know, there's nine hundred forty plus uh, breeds of cattle. Okay.
0: Maybe they're easily hybridized, or uh, who knows? What What do you think?
2: Are you kidding me? You know, you know how big an auroch was? We're talking about animals that weighed 25, up to 2,500 pounds, were eight feet, you know, at the shoulder. Huge wild animals with a a nasty disposition. (laughs) Uh, And I I, I don't think it's by accident that the first uh, domestication of these huge wild beasts uh, with very deadly horns occurred in the same uh, regions where we first (laughs) brewed beer and and uh fermented uh grapes into wine it's almost like you know these guys had to, these little uh you know potential herders or aspiring herders had to get all pumped up before they tried to tackle and steal a baby from you know this wild rampaging oroc that could just fling them you know 100 100 feet if it wanted to i mean we're talking really big powerful animals that didn't go extinct until the 1640s i think the last one uh died in uh, the the Protected Royal Forest in Poland Wow, I I think we did talk about that It wasn't
0: on another show, I think we talked about it On the phone, probably
2: Possibly, yeah Because
0: I remember you telling me about this And there's a bit of it, probably all of this is in the book But, uh, oh, you know what it, When you're telling me that, what it sounds like Is a bunch of people just like to sit around barbecue meat And get drunk <laughs> <laughs>
2: well it's one thing to hunt these things it's another thing to try to capture and contain them and imagine the ritual that must have taken place when they presented that big old mean nasty bull with a nice you know big big eyed cow you know all probably decked out in all sorts of finery (laughs)
1: Uh,
2: because you know they they quickly had to uh somehow breed the you know the the fierceness and the wildness out of out of the animals and and they were able to do that and in fairly quick order about nine hundred years i think then you start seeing the real you know the the more docile uh... domesticated uh, cattle uh... the original animals that they had to work with were f- wild animals i mean they they would tear you up Yeah. and uh... man i i would not want to be got of uh... You know, of a twenty five hundred pound auroch, you know, that's angry that you're trying to steal one of its babies. You know, <laughs> it just—I would not want to be. Uh, I'm sure thousands of people died trying.
0: Yeah, or you know, they'd get five, five, six, eight, ten drunk guys with a bunch of of uh, uh, spears or otterlottles or something, and 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 go at it until the thing was just died by you know, you know, fifteen, fifteen, twenty different. <laughs> cuts or whatever. Yeah, but what about the rest of the herd? Yeah, exactly. I guess you you you, you can't really uh uh separate them out like a like uh animals that uh, hunting animals can, at least ones that cooperate. Well,
2: well, it's like it's like it's like bison, you know, you try to attack a herd of bison with babies. The babies are in the middle and there's a big phalanx and a in a ring around them of the yeah. the adult so anyway, yeah, I just I I find uh, you know an answer to your your question about that or your observation. Yeah, I, I have to start the book out, at least making an attempt to give a cliff notes, you know, idea or version of, of uh, you know our ancient you know sacred tradition with bovines and how how that initial sacred sort of sense that we had. Uh, and, and and sort of put onto these animals uh, in, in almost a religious or spiritual sense. I think, obviously, has been totally lost in the Western world. Of course, it still it still has a place in India, but it's eroding there as well. Um, there's now gangs of lifters, as they're called in India. They go around at night with these um, uh, dump trucks that they've converted into cattle cars, and what they do is they they go up and they find these you know you know blissful you know Brahma cows and, and, and cattle that are walking around the streets uh in some village. And they'll pull up and they'll they'll coax it into the back of this dump truck. They have uh they've created these these ramps for them and they they kidnap these cows and then sell them on the black market to these to these illegal uh rendering plants that spring up. And so we're seeing an erosion of the sacred, you know, uh sort of system that's evolved around our, our human relationship with cattle in India. And we're seeing uh, that breaking down in the modern era because more and more people, as they discover, you know, beef, I mean, I love beef. Yeah. I mean, geez. You know, I just had a hamburger today, actually. What? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I well, think I, I... Work. I know where the meat came from. And, yeah. You know? I think you know, I, I asked
0: you this last time we had an interview it's like knowing what you know Chris O'Brien about beef and where it comes from what happens how can you eat it anymore and I guess you just have to like you say be real careful about where it comes from
2: yeah it's got to be grass fed it's got to be you know uh, local it has to be uh, come from a place uh that you can ascertain uh that the animals have been treated uh with respect and uh they're not you know Bunched together by the tens of thousands and pumped full of antibiotics and, and growth hormones, eighty percent of the antibiotics used in this country go into cattle. Uh, I think over half the growth hormones uh, used in this country go into cattle uh, it's just you know and they feed them grain, which they aren 't really designed uh, biologically yeah. to you know to to process i mean it's seventeen hundred or sixteen to seventeen hundred pounds of grain are fed a single head of livestock to fatten it up uh 400 pounds with all that grain uh, you know you could feed the entire starving 2 billion people on the planet with all the grain that we we pump into uh into cattle feed
0: right in our by marriage our uh family the on my wife's side they have um what cattle ranch right and they and here's an insight sort of into what what goes on with with cattle ranching and what 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 it's turned into and I'm sure you know really well um, that they stopped being cattle ranchers and now they're cattle feed per people they <laughs> yeah Sigrid's sitting here, she says they still have some cattle i don't know how many like a couple hundred ahead, but these have thousands and uh I think she asked them why they stopped, and, he's, and her, her uh, uncle said, well, its I'll tell you, it's like taking your entire bankroll and betting it on one hand every year.
2: Yeah, yeah, and that's why in the mid-'70s, at the height of the mutilation waves, 80% of those small ranching operations are now out of business, and they've been replaced by these huge feedlot operations that can process up to 400 animals an hour. Yeah. I mean, we're talking... A, a, you know, we could be talking a political agenda that's been, you know, piggybacked on top of what other, you know, other potential agendas uh, are behind the mutilation of cattle and other livestock. I think a, a major contender in my mind is driving small ranching operations out of business and consolidating all these ranch lands. The location of these major feedlot operations and rendering plants is usually at the bullseye center. Of where waves of mutilation reports were reported during the height of uh, of this whole mystery back in the seventies.
0: See, that's amazing, and I think you did. I think you did point that out in the book, actually. Oh yeah, because I remember hearing that. Uh, Can you give an example? Like you know, recount like anything happening in northern New Mexico, southern Colorado, which was you know the big big hotbed.
2: Well, I think those cases are a little different. I think it's a front range and midwest cases. The the Greeley, Colorado, uh Sterling, Colorado area, for instance, uh in you know, northern extreme northern uh Colorado and Well County Sterling uh area. Now there's this huge rendering plant there and that was literally the epicenter probably of the entire mutilation phenomenon and now, you know, the vast majority, you know, eight out of ten of the small, you know, less than 500 head uh, ranching operations are are long gone. They're out of business, and they've been yeah. driven out and replaced by this huge industrialized, uh, you know, protein, uh, <laughs> beef protein factories in, in feedlots.
0: Yeah. Uh, Carlos is writing in here on uh, Facebook. He said, uh, have there been any reports of longhorn mutilations?
2: Yeah, plenty. Yeah. Yeah, Longhorns uh you know it's interesting. I, I by researching this book I found out a lot of things about cattle I didn't know. The modern beef cow is a relatively new um kind of phenomenon that started really gaining hold in the eighteen sixties, eighteen seventies, uh right at the beginning of the big cattle uh drives up the Chisholm Trail and the Goodnight Loving Trail from from uh Texas up into Kansas and to Dodge City and in places like that where the railroads uh were located and and what we have here is a cross between the longhorn which is actually an offshoot of the original Spanish cattle that were brought over uh into Mexico and and they were crossed with the Aberdeen Angus which is a premier beef cow and so they they wanted the 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 bulk of the Angus which are the black cows you see all over in the west with the short kind of stubby legs and they they just they're just hefty uh and the, and the longhorns i mean god longhorns have been seen climbing trees to get food they are so resilient and so um so tough and and just uh, able to adapt to almost any environmental condition as long as they have enough water and you know a, a couple hundred acres to to munch cactus anything else it can eat and, and and process with its four stomachs uh that particular cross is what has really Given rise to the modern beef cow, a combination of a Longhorn and an Angus, and later on they brought in uh, Herefords and and Limousines uh, in the high high altitude areas. Limousines are the best cows for uh, you know above five six thousand feet of elevation. They they the elevation doesn't tend to to stunt them uh-huh. uh, like it does other breeds. So yes, Longhorns, uh, gosh, uh, most of the hybrids that you know have been predated on have some Longhorn in them.
0: Yeah, I, I don't know exactly what Carlos means here. He says wild southwestern cattle, not actual ranch cattle. I I don't know. Well, if there, I thought yeah, that, that I I mean, thought that's the,
2: kind of a go ahead. It's kind of an oxymoron. Um, you know, all cattle. You know, for the most part, uh, in the Southwest, especially in West Texas, uh, the Front Range of Colorado, New Mexico. These animals are. I mean they they're just let loose and they just have barbed wire you know barbed wire was the most important invention in the west really uh, Yeah. It, and much to the uh, you know to the chagrin of the pronghorn herds which immediately were reduced drastically because they can't jump fences they have to crawl underneath so yeah. barbed wire was a real major major development technological development uh and there's many types of barbed wire but uh but it all does the same thing. It keeps it keeps cattle within a contained uh, range area, and you know. But what they do within that range area, you know, is totally up to uh, you know. As as Sigrid, I'm sure, would uh, attest to. I mean, gosh, you you have cows that, you know, many cows when they're rounded up, they've probably never even seen a human before. Meaning. They're, they're just range just They're just free range until they're out there just, until they uh, get to a certain
0: them. size, and then they herd them in and take what they need.
2: Exactly. And boy, I'll tell you this: the Longhorns, man, they are tough. They are a tough, resilient breed of animal. They can survive in some of the most adverse conditions. Of course, with the droughts that Texas has been having the last, uh, you know, six, seven, eight years, I'm sure some of the Longhorn herds are having a hard time. Uh, managing uh you know eking out their existence but but out of all the cattle out there longhorns are, are by far the, the you know the most resilient uh the, the at least uh, to my
1: knowledge
0: yeah uh, so we talked about a little bit a lot about the uh the history of cattle and, hu- and human and how they're related how far back does the mutilation thing go as you uh, as you would say uh, you know a I guess classic mutilation, I don't know, as opposed well, to a modern one where you you know you've got well I don't know, is there a difference?
2: Well well there is. Um again, you have to kind of dovetail that into livestock, uh, animals that have been domesticated and 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 raised for meat basically. Yes. The earliest known outbreak that I've been able to discover uh historically with with fairly good documentation is 1606 in uh, the shires around London during the reign of James I uh, there was hundreds of sheep mutilations at a very, very crucial point in Western history. It's right during the time that uh James I was rewriting the, the Christian Bible. Uh Shakespeare was writing Macbeth, uh, the Guy Fox uh gunpowder plot uh kind of you know was was uncovered. And it was during this very crucial about six month period that you had a wave of, of sheep mutilations around around uh, London, and that to me uh, is the earliest known documentation that, that I know of, of, of you know, waves of, of unexplained livestock deaths. Now, with the cattle, it, it gets into a little trickier ground because the earliest waves of <laughs> cattle mutilations were, were preceded by waves of cattle uh, rustling. Yeah, you know, with lots of helicopters involved and gunfights between helicopters and, and ranchers and and even outbreaks uh, prior to outbreaks, uh, Harry Hominid reports. Believe it or not. So, in terms of the cattle, it's really tough to really nail it down. We do have some cases from the twenties uh, in in Australia. Uh, there were uh, many more sheep found. Uh, mysteriously slain, but also there were uh, scattering reports of cattle as well. Um, But in terms of the classic mutilations, you know, we're we're looking at the first real known cases uh, that are documented in 70 in in Minnesota. Um, And and then later, you know, parts of Iowa, Kansas. But again, it was mixed in uh, initially with uh, waves of, of cattle rustling and uh, also cattle that were shot and uh shot with firearms and then found in uh cut up so it's almost like whoever was uh originated the mid 70s waves of um you know 75 through you know 79 with the the hell years as i call them in my book those waves tended to be uh, preceded by by you know fairly well actually very well documented uh reports of uh massive cattle rustling so it it 's almost like at first they they tried to steal the cows and not leave any evidence behind but uh because there were so many uh reports of helicopters of strange lights uh spotlights on 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 animals and herds and and you know vigilante uh groups forming in ranchlands uh in the eastern midwest that uh, then they switched, I think, uh, their their M.O. and started started actually mutilating the animals in secret and leaving them uh, behind instead of trying to rustle them. Uh, now, Linda uh, Howe's never going to tell you that. <laughs> you know? Why so, would
0: you switch from stealing cattle to just killing a few here and there?
2: Uh, because there were, like, armed vigilante groups uh, roaming the countryside looking for helicopters to shoot them down.
0: Oh, okay. So, but... <laughs> Okay, so somebody wants these cattle for some reason or another. Um I I probably a lot of people know what what we're getting at here and where we're going to go with this, but that's fine. But somebody wants these cattle for some reason or other and they find the best way to do it is to just take what they need and then, you know, uh do, well, do what they need behind, to do to the cattle. It's not a crime. Yeah, and if if it's if they leave it behind then it's not rustling, it's not stealing and and right, and, and official police
2: reports might not be filed, and there's plausible deniability.
0: Okay, so what? Um, here, here we enter the area of the uh, the neophyte, and why would somebody be doing this? I mean, we well, we can discuss this a little bit. That's
2: a sixty-four million dollar question. Uh, okay, you know.
0: what is the what is your what is your favorite theory? Now, open to you know, obviously open to. Uh,
2: uh, uh, to be well, to be
0: changed or edited or or completely right. thrown away
2: well whatever theory i come up with if i get into a debate and take the opposite side i will win yeah so exactly for every theory you come up with there's more than enough data to refute it so
0: okay well then let me take it from the other direction
2: even after reading the book
0: and uh and sort of pointing out to you th- places in it that i you said you know read it and see what you you think about it Even after reading the book, I could not disabuse myself of the idea um, that Gabe Valdez put in my head and a few other people of the um, clandestine uh, monitoring of health thing.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And that that I think in terms of all the theories that have been put forward, including the skeptics and debunkers saying that there's no mystery here. This is just misidentified scavenger action. You know, to the ET proponents who claim that these are animals being taken for genetic experiments and they're using the parts for some sort of hybridization program, blah blah yeah. blah. And they're really bad at
0: it because we could do it with one, one or two cows, and they need thousands apparently.
2: Well, I mean, all you'd have to do is go into a, a rendering plant and slaughterhouse at night, pick the lock, go in. You have as, uh, enough yeah. genetic material.
0: Yeah, exactly. So, anyway.
2: Obviously, to me, this indicates that it's not so much the animal. Uh, per se, it's where the animal is located in the environment. And early on, David Perkins, uh, who I feel is the the most important figure in this ent- the entire field, uh, and has been for many years, his initial you know idea after four years of looking into this from seventy five through seventy nine, he realized, hey, there's some pretty interesting uh, correlations here. The the most important one is areas of high incidence where these animals, uh, waves of these animal deaths and disfigurements are occurring, are downwind and downstream of where we process, mine, enrich, and utilize uranium. And so that, that to me, the environmental monitoring theory has always had the most uh, sticking power in terms of uh, the amount of data to support that particular theory. And I really do have a sense that a major portion of these cases, not all, but a major portion of these cases have to do with monitoring the effects of pollutants, most notably uh, uranium, uh, in the environment. And these cases tend to cluster around uh, uh, river systems, riparian areas, areas that that are – you can almost look at you know I have a big map in the middle of the book that, that shows the areas of high incidence and they seem to be clustered up up river valleys, uh, places where uh, you know you have power plants, you you know nuclear power plants, uh, weapons uh, enrichment facilities, uranium mine fields mm-hmm. uh, where they where they you know, are pulling this material out of the ground. If you go downwind and downstream. Of These areas, that's where uh, a vast majority, I think, of cases uh, have occurred over the years.
0: Yeah, uh, th- this is a thing I agree with. And what you said just a few minutes ago was if you got in an argument with yourself, you would win the argument on the other side. What is ar- what argues against that? Because that- that's one I've got stuck in my head. I can't get it out of my head. And I, I'll, you know, I have to guard against being. Getting to the point where I have a theory, which I just filter everything through. So, how could you disabuse me of the idea that that's what's going on? What what disproves? That well, theory? in
2: terms of arguing against that theory, it, it would be difficult to argue that one. But I would point out cases <laughs> yes. that are upwind and upstream of places where we utilize uranium. Cases in. Uh, California, Oregon, uh, Washington that aren't near Hanford or, you know, some of the the nuclear power plants, Uh, cases in the Canary Islands, cases in Puerto Rico, uh, cases in Australia that that don't seem to conform to that particular scenario. Um, There are plenty of cases that are outside of that particular, uh, you know, potential explanation, which doesn't mean that these cases aren't you know aren't environmental monitoring but they may be doing other things as well um gabe valdez brought up early on and that he felt that some cases had to do with some sort of experimentation for instance uh ted oliphant also uh, talked yeah. about you know the potential for bacteriological warfare experiments uh gauging right. the response in rural communities of uh of these cases uh in in uh down in alabama and um you know there's there's cases uh you know Betty Hill of all people investigated one of two cases ever reported in new hampshire huh. uh and again uh you know we we don't have that that direct correlation with uh with uranium uh, but you know again, I think that this I've always said uh, I feel multiple groups are involved, there's multiple agendas uh these agendas are being stacked one on top of another, they're using you know one agenda's cases as a red herring to maybe take the uh you know the the concentrated efforts of investigators uh you know try to dissuade them from going in this direction and going in this direction they're using each other's agendas as as red herrings uh i think it's much more complex than a one size fits all answer there is no one size fits all answer i don 't care right. if you're you're a debunker uh, you know someone that thinks it's e t s someone that thinks it's environmental monitoring yeah. all these theories have an achilles heel and i think if you look at them in total you know it, the mass of these cases and and you start filtering out particular agendas that could be operative, then you come up with i think a, a more well rounded uh, possibly, you know, clearer picture of of what we're dealing with here.
0: What might uh, that clearer picture result in? And I also wanted to ask you, and these are two different questions, and maybe we'll get back to it. When you say they, who are these they you are talking about?
2: Well, you know, whoever these these groups are, um, I I do think that there is some, you know, th- there's also the possibility, and I point this out uh, in the last chapter. I mean, when we brought. You know, diseased brains of Kuru victims from New Guinea. You know, which were uh, it's a transmissible spongiform encephalopathy, which is like mad cow disease, Kutzfeldt-Jakob's disease, scrapie, yeah. chronic wasting disease. Yeah. This occurred uh, among the Foray tribes people in northern Papua, New Guinea, uh, in the fifties and sixties, and a couple of very interesting. Uh, you know, kind of environmental, sort of medical James Bonds uh, are are involved in this whole, in this whole scenario as well. And some of these brains were brought back to Fort Detrick, to the Rock Mountain Labs, and other biological weapons uh, development facilities prior to, you know, the uh, biological and chemical weapons ban. I think in seventy one or seventy two under Nixon. Yeah. Uh, prior to that, we were looking for uh you know viable biological agents that could be weaponized and and there is a very strong possibility that some of these weaponized programs escaped into nature and yeah. so you also have that particular uh wild card uh which i feel is very very important i think uh, we are in in one sense of the word some of these cases are are potentially monitoring the you know, god, god forbid the spread of uh of mad cow disease and chronic wasting disease in 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 animal herds and and that's another uh really i think viable investigative uh you know approach uh that at least i i've been very very concerned with with investigating i don't think it's by accident that the nobel prize in 1976 was awarded to the guy that first identified uh prion disease and then The guy that first, uh, you know, actually, that was in 1976, the Nobel Prize for Medicine. Daniel, I don't know how to pronounce his name, Gudujic. And then 20 years later, in 1996, uh, Nobel Prize for Medicine was awarded the guy that actually, uh, you know, discovered the prion, was able to actually define what it is and prove its existence. And I don't think that's by accident that those two guys, I think they were like paid off to keep their mouths shut. Uh, by giving them Nobel Prizes. Uh you know, I might get in trouble for saying that, but huh. it's you know, Stanley Prousner and this Daniel Gudujek guy uh, are, are right at the heart of this. And uh it's not Why? by Did accident. Did they
0: shut up right after that? Nothing else nothing well, else was done?
2: They've never really gone on the record, uh to my knowledge. I, I haven't heard anything from Prousner in years. Uh of course he was the one that that uh first identified the Prion which uh, the Prion which is the smallest known uh... i guess living organism in nature thousand times smaller than the smallest virus which was the prior uh... smallest life form yeah uh, but, but the problem with prions is you really can't kill them all you can do is kind of turn them off uh... all those you know four point five million uh... cattle that were slaughtered and, and cremated in england uh, many of the prions if not most of them survived the twelve hundred degree you know cremation process and yeah. Because they're and, basically like
0: they're more like chemicals than than they are living things
2: well they're they're proteins that for some reason trigger and and begin misfolding and they cause other proteins to misfold yeah and the end result are the same conditions that that people uh you know who die of dementia or Alzheimer's. it's the same exact uh kinds of 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 you know symptoms basically. And all these people i mean we 've seen a, what a six thousand percent increase in dementia and alzheimer 's deaths uh, over the past twenty years, and none of these people are being autopsy we really don 't know what kills them it 's just oh, they died of alzheimer's they died of dementia well that that 's an assumption that the medical community uh, is making, and we really don 't know uh, what actually killed them what the the causative force for them to twitch out and, and their you know their whole you know metabolic uh, process to be compromised and you know the the shaking of limbs the the memory lapses and and you know you're you know you're devolving into this uh you know nightmare of dementia yeah. that those are the exact symptoms uh, of of prion, prion disease so you know I, I go into all this in in chapter 12 in the book and I I I really feel that this is a very uh, potentially a very fruitful uh avenue to to go down and 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 maybe all these other agendas. You you ask who they are. Well, I think there's somebody that's really concerned uh, within the government slash medical community, uh, the health uh, community. Uh, whether it's the center, Centers for Disease Control, the National Institutes of Health, these are very compromised agencies. And and some of the things that they've signed off on, and 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 some of the scandals that have been covered up about about some of the work that they 've done uh really deserve i think a, a lot more glare of publicity than they 've gotten uh there's a very effective p r screen that's that's been put in place around these activities yeah you know what it 's funny It
0: sounds like my explanation for the u f o cover up because there's no for the way you describe it there's no real way to defend against it, and that would scare a lot of people and it, they they don 't know what it since somebody in authority says, we have this thing, we don't know what it is, we don't know where it comes from, we don't know how to control it, why discuss it? Why bring it up? Why, you know, scare the public or whatever? I mean that's
2: Exactly. That, right. Just, Ignorance is bliss. Yeah. Uh, the whole, you know, what is government's job? Government's job is to control and to maintain and uh, attain and maintain control. I mean that's basically it. And if, if if government ever has to admit they're not in control of the situation – yeah. <laughs> then they're they're shooting themselves. They're, they're blowing their feet off with a shotgun instead of, you know, stepping on a cactus thorn or something.
0: Yeah. Well, you have to give the appearance of knowing what the hell is going on or people aren't going to expect you to know what's going on and abdicate their responsibility for worrying, thinking and acting on things by their uh, on their own.
2: Well, exactly.
0: Which so, is a lot know, of do... work in the way the world
2: is set up right now where you're you're you've been doing it for years. <laughs> well, we have to be open minded and entertain and and you know all possibilities look at the evidence um really come up with with hypotheses that we can support with some sort of of database um, and and then you know throw it against the wall and see what sticks and that 's basically stalking the herd is the mud and it's getting thrown against the wall and stalking <laughs> the stalkers uh for lack of a better working title is going to be uh the work that's really gonna look at this and, and crunch the numbers. I, I had you know a very gracious offer by uh you know a reader. Uh, he said, Man, you know, I'm a data analyst. I'd really love to get involved here. This is a absolute you know gold mine for, for data mining. You know, let would you work with me uh to you know really look at trends, patterns, yeah, that sort of thing. And So I, I do yeah. have somebody that's uh, crunching the numbers with me.
0: Excellent. That's what should yeah. be done with the UFO stuff and, and a lot of other th- paranormal stuff is take all the data you can possibly generate and then start running them through filters and Seeing what right. patterns emerge and asking strange questions that you wouldn't normally ask, you know.
2: Right. Well, Jacques Vallee tried that uh, early on. I mean, being yeah, he a computer did. scientist, a uh, do it. but it's a garbage in, garbage out scenario. You have to have certain. I, I think you need to, to uh, factor out. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. Any case that could be equivocal, it's got to be, t- uh, you know, factored out of the database, and just go with the with the cases that have the elements that that cannot be explained by. Uh, you know, your typical mundane explanation, which is, you know, scavenger and predator action. I made a point of uh, of, of including photographs in the book of cases that absolutely refute uh, debunker and skeptical assertions that only upside organs, for instance, are, are found missing uh there's many many cases where downside organs or, or both sides have been gone uh cases where animals have been found in in impossible locations that they couldn't have possibly gotten into by themselves yeah uh the one case where the the unborn fetus was mutilated that that blows my mind now you know go ahead that you know that was a coyote that like uh you know just drilled.
0: specifically decided that it was going to uh
2: attack the uh <laughs> A fetus, Attack is- an unborn fetus, yeah. you know, even though it was about ready to be born. I mean, the animal was found. Uh, we've had animals uh, that have been mutilated. That uh, I had a a, a vet, actually, uh, an, a large animal vet, call me up and say, "Chris, you're not going to believe this, but uh, I, I, you know, I, I went out and, you know, I, this poor cow was uh, trying to give birth, but it couldn't because uh, something had had." Fused its its reproductive uh, tract closed, and there was no way for the animal to be born. I had to literally cut through all this scar tissue to get in there. And and the animal, you know, I I I'm a vet. I inspected this animal, and it was ready to, you know, to give birth. And now I go out there and and the whole, you know, the whole. Reproductive tract on the out, you know, towards, towards the towards the outside of it had, had been closed off in a very peculiar, you know, unnatural way. There's lots of things in nature that that can't be explained by, you know, modern veterinary science. And yeah. you know, I'm an amateur. To you know, I'll be the first one to admit I'm not a veterinary pathologist. I didn't go to you know, 15 years of of, of school and and learn to be trained to to determine you know how an animal died and what happened to it after it died but i'll tell you i put enough reports in here from certified veterinary pathologists professionals that that absolutely slam dunk uh any sort of assertion that all these cases can be explained with mundane explanations there's you know nobody has ever actually taken the time to put all these reports uh together to refute the uh you know, the the Canadian study, uh, the Rommel report. I yeah. mean, there have been a number of reports that have come out over the years that just poo-poo the whole thing and say, oh, this is nothing. Move, there's nothing to see here. Move along. Yeah. And you start talking to some of the top uh, veterinary pathologists in the Midwest in the 70s and, and early 80s, and, and there are some really good, uh, very well-documented um, lab, lab uh, routines and reports that have been uh, published.
0: Yeah, you can go all the way from, and this is what, you know, Fascinated fascinated me at the beginning when I first started learning about this stuff. You can go from one end to the other of the type of evidence and, yeah, there's a lot of it that's, you know, predator activity. But what yeah, do you make yeah. of something on such a microscopic level that, it, you know, that's never been found in a, uh, in, in a natural uh, uh, animal death? Uh, what do you make of clamp marks on, on the legs of, of cattle and, and broken bones that can only result from being dropped. The predators yeah. don't do that. And well, you, like you know, in Gates' I,
2: case, I mean, he had cases where the animal appeared perfectly normal on the outside, and, and when they did a, you know, a necropsy on it, the thing was microwaved and cooked on the inside. How do you explain that? That's not a coyote. Yeah, exactly. And I don't...
0: It, both, you know, and this is the same thing that happens with fundamentalist type skeptics and believers is that they ignore vast swaths of evidence in in trying to shore up whatever their idea is. And I think there's <laughs> yeah. there's also a problem here, and I whine about this all the time. And you're one of the few people that I know, you know, uh, uh, well, the few people that I know, my friends, because I don't like people that aren't like this, that will routinely. Push themselves to not be in a belief system, you know what i mean I, I, they, okay I, the, the basic of all the basis of all this that you, you have a huge problem with being satisfied with some theory you have you 're very uncomfortable when you come to a conclusion about something, and other things keep pointing at it saying that 's not the conclusion there 's a lot of stuff here that you 're not looking at there 's a rush to judgment or a, right. oh I know what I call it I call it a belief fetish yeah.
2: <laughs> oh, man, I'm going to steal that one. I yeah. love it. Great term. What is this?
0: What is this? What is this? Uh, not even a belief in it. What is this certainty fetish people have?
2: Yeah. yeah. Why it, do you have to be so that, certain that about need, something? that need to have an answer, and it doesn't matter how, you know, forget Occam's razor and Sherlock Holmes. I I don't care. I, we need an answer. This must be the answer. It's the most convenient one.
0: Yeah. Well, the other thing is I never, uh, you know, I maybe I don't understand Occam's razor properly, but. Why is the simplest answer always the best one? It's not always the best one. No. Answers a lot of answers come from places you would never expect and are quite complicated.
2: Right. Well the the author Conan Doyle quote, you know, after you've exhausted all possibilities, uh whatever you know one is left, how <laughs> no matter how inconceivable it is, is yeah, you know, could be could be the answer or yeah. the truth. So you know, again, you know, you 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 mentioned this in the very beginning. You know of the of the show here that that uh, you know I've really attempted to approach this as objectively as as possible, and it's only the only way that I could have done that is to actually be out there and and actually look at these cases, uh, work with vets, work uh, you know with get up to speed at least to a certain point where I know what to look for uh, when it comes to ascertaining a mundane. Uh, demise of a cow, and 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 just some sort of natural process that that happens to a dead head of livestock. And you know, I constantly try to drill this into the heads of some of these up and coming investigators. The first thing you should do is look for cut hair follicles. If you got an inch of hair that's been cut, you know, I don't care if it's an insect, a bird, a coyote, any sort of predator or scavenger, they cannot do that. Yeah. And if if you find a straight line of cut hair follicles—something with a sharp implement or some sort of cutting tool did that. Yeah. And it doesn't matter how much you want to try to get around that. As a, as a skeptic, you cannot argue with that fact. It's just—it's just not possible. And uh, you know, I, I sometimes I just feel like I'm shouting in the <laughs> in the breeze. But but uh, you know, everybody. Wants it to be, you know, like you said, cut and dried belief fetish. I love that. Or, or you know, answer fetish. Oh, uh, a
0: certainty fetish.
2: Certainty fetish. Yeah. What is and,
0: this certainty fetish people have, especially in the paranormal community? That yeah. is the last thing you need.
2: Oh, my God. Yeah. And that's <laughs> why you and I uh, are able to have these conversations is because that we understand that that is the major stumbling block in this field uh, in terms of it being taken seriously by academia and and, and by the scientific community is there's too many people out there thinking, oh, I know what it is, so I'm going to go out and look for the data to support it. And if it doesn't support it, I'm going to twist it as much as I can to make it conform to that foregone conclusion. And that is not good. Uh, That's not doing good investigative work and research in, in my book.
0: Yeah, well, there's a also a problem with scientific uh, uh, investigation or academia being interested in stuff like this. Uh, even something as as uh, you know boots on the ground, in your face reality as a cattle mutilation, it's because there's not a single plausible theory as to why it's going on. So anybody with a a serious you know mind and a serious job and a, a career and uh, reputation or whatever you want to call it, is going to shy away from it. And that's too bad. You know, Unless well, uh, they do it you know, kind of the- sub rosa where they don't really talk about it or talk to him. And I'm sure there's a lot of people like that and you've met them.
2: Yeah, well, that that's true. Um, but there are exceptions to that. I mean, there are a number of pathologists uh, over the years that have gone out on a limb and said, wait a minute, there is something going on here. I am a You know, he didn't say this. A world-class veterinary, you know, pathologist. But you know, we've had world-class veterinary pathologists attempt to duplicate some of these these uh, incisional uh, operations and and have a difficult time doing it. Mm -hmm. Now that lends credence to some sort of real high-strange sort of uh, possibly, you know, ET type uh, scenario. And you know, I will never be the one to factor out. Or say, you know, ETs aren't coming here and doing this. We have a a very tantalizing body of evidence that suggests that something extremely uh, high-tech and and almost uh, magical is going on with with some of these cases. But they are by far, you know, they're very rare and very few when you look at the whole total number of animals that have been found in this condition, even after you factor out. Potential mundane explanations, which, you know, as you pointed out, a lot of these cases, you know, could be just media-induced hysteria. You know, people hear, well, my neighbors, you know, or people that live in my region have been reporting cow mutilations, you know, I'm, I'm kind of freaked out. So, you know, if I go out and see a dead cow, you know. Oh my god, maybe that's one too. You you have this snowball rolling down the hill effect, which which I really cover in the book. I mean, I yes. I look at how these cases or potential cases are disseminated out into the public and what happens once the media gets involved. I mean, that is really it's like throwing gasoline on a fire. And uh it makes it really difficult to ascertain the real, you know, Bona fide high strange cases, uh, or, or cases that have obviously been perpetrated—let's put it that way—by uh, intelligence, uh, with intelligence, and cases that have just simply misidentified. It really muddies up the waters and makes it extremely difficult. That's why, you know, if I had tried to do a case history of this phenomenon, uh, it would take three or four books.
0: Yeah. <laughs> what I did
2: was I picked out the cases that illustrate that the debunkers and skeptics, you know, are not completely right. In fact, in many cases, they're completely wrong. And so, what I try to do is highlight the cases that have the types of, of discernible evidence that indicates that there is some somebody or something out there that is perpetrating these these uh, these disfigurements of animals. Yeah, I don't know why I thought of
0: this while you were telling me, you know, what's going on and how people react to it. What is the stupidest question you've ever heard when you've been? <laughs> being interviewed about this. There's probably a lot of them. And then oh, we'll God, go I on know to where the where to best. go with that. Yeah.
2: Uh, oh man, there's so many. Uh, I don't know. How many different types of aliens are taking these cattle? <laughs> yeah, know. it would be some something <laughs> along the lines of that or uh you know uh why do you think aliens are interested in bull penises? You know, or that—that uh, <laughs> uh, that was one I had. Uh, uh, there, there've been more than a few. Greg, uh, that's why I try to stay away from those kinds of shows and and stick with uh, Radio Misterioso and you know shows that at least have hosts that are you know kind of up to speed and and not totally wet behind the ears so I, yeah I, well I, I like avoid. that too
0: I, I was listening to uh, actually today I was listening to a couple of shows I've been on and I I was usually I'll listen to the show to hear what I said so I know what I've been saying what I have and see if there's anything wrong with it or what people have been asking and some of these shows were so boring yeah and people are trying to sound so professional and it's just like why don't you just be yourself nobody's going to bother you besides the thing is it, you're not going to make any money off this. The, you know there's probably three people that do, so why bother being quote unquote professional about it? Just you know the best shows and I try to emulate are people and people that are truly what is the word curious about the subject, cr- truly open-minded about it, yeah, have a sense of humor, really important.
2: Yeah, which is and, rare. That's yeah, and one of the um, reasons why I like being on radio, Misterioso, because we can always have fun.
0: Yeah, have a sense of humor, and then you know that every time you talk to whoever it is, like you or or any of my friends, um, any time, any time I talk to any of these people, I I will have my mind changed or challenged or know something that I didn't before. That's why we do these shows, and I think that's I think the basis of why you you did what you did because you, you why did you chris i mean why why get involved in this why do you even care why why did the obsession take hold and not let go of you why do you think that happened because yeah, most people go Ugh, cows yuck you know then that'll be it
2: well i mean it's you know I've, I've told the story several times over the years on on your show about the yellow helicopter i mean that, ah, that's that, it that's that right totally hooked me i mean to go out 13 years after a case occurred pick up the skull out of the pasture and say, do you mind if I take this home and paint it and and have them talk about, you know, this weird antique helicopter that flew out of their field and flew over their house, just, you know, 50 feet up. And they got a really good look at it. Yeah. And 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 then the next morning, 13 years later, typing up my notes in the same exact kind of helicopter, the same color, mustard, yellow uh, yeah. color flew right over my house. I mean, I, you know, I, I, I don't want to sound, you know, kind of weird when i say this but i i definitely kissed the tar baby man forget about just bear rabbit just grabbing the tar baby <laughs> i i gave that thing a smack on the face and it's still stuck it's still stuck on your face yes
0: <laughs> yeah
2: any did I mean, end- that, that really that did that was that was the i mean that's when the whole trickster uh element uh you know just smacked me upside the head that's when the synchronicity uh element kicked in and and the whole um some sort of weird cultural stigmata, um, <laughs> I think, uh, you know, kind of emerged, uh, you know, early on before I met David Perkins, uh, before yeah. I really met Tom Adams, Linda Howe. This happened like within 10 12 days of, of, of first starting, yeah, uh, this investigative work just to write a, a simple little article for a small town newspaper, and and I, I've just been off to the races ever since. I mean, that really really uh put me on this weird path of oh you're the dead cow guy it's like i hate it when people say that you know they we're talking tonight to the dead
0: cow guy <laughs> whose new book stalking the dead cows is about dead cows what do you know about dead cows mr dead i
2: hate Cowgirl? dead cows except if they're you know if they're done seasoned properly and medium rare i used to <laughs> rare as you dare but I've been a little nervous about that. Yeah, so I'm um, yeah I think after later.
0: reading some of your stuff, I, I switched to medium rare. Um, well, you know what? I I remember talking about that. It was featured in your more than one of your books. Yeah. But what is like? What's the second weirdest thing that happened? Like a synchronistic thing where you just went, "Oh, come
2: on." Well, uh, the first actual case I went out on, uh, which was a cow. You know, I was interviewing a rancher who lost forty nine head in two weeks. Ah! Either shot, stolen, or mutilated. Uh, at the height of the mutilation wave in '75 in the San Luis Valley, where you know I I did uh, most of my investigative work, and then uh, you know interviewing him, and then during the interview, uh, which I have, you know, you can hear the phone ring, and he goes and picks it up, and it's his nephew going, "Is that is that cattle guy there? Because I got one on my, on the ground here at my ranch, and we just stopped the interview and raced up there." And I'm standing there with this group of ranchers who are sitting there scratching their heads going, what,
1: what the, the hell, hell is this?
2: And then all all the cattle, you know, uh, the rest of the herd, there was about 60 head in the, in the pasture. As soon as they saw us gathered around the animal, they came thundering across the uh, the pasture. And we kind of stepped back and watched them. And they they did a ritual. They started, they got in a circle around the dead cow. And then they started moving around kind of sideways in a, Almost like a Native American ritual, and they were, you know, lowering their heads and mooing, raising their heads and mooing. It was the most eerie, spooky thing I think I've ever seen in nature. It, it just, I mean, and I, I run out of batteries at that point, and and I wish I had a shot of those eight or nine, ten ranchers sitting, standing in in a row with their mouths on their.
1: Just like yeah, what was butt. their
2: reaction? Did they just? Well, the first thing I said Poop is I've ever or seen cows do this and they look at me and, and a few of them couldn't even answer. They just shook their heads and then a few of them said, No way. This is not normal bovine behavior, you know. <laughs> How long <laughs> did so, that
0: last? What did they do afterwards? Just kind of wander uh, off or
2: Well Yeah, they just kinda of wandered off. They did their thing and then just kind of wandered away. Oh there's and another found siren that, for that you. weird yellow kind of marmalade st- stuff that I put into a, a sealed, you know, I sealed it and taped it up into a film canister and sent it off to John Altschuler. And when he got it, he said the only thing that had ever been in that container was film. <laughs> it totally disappeared, vanished. I even signed my name on the tape. And yeah. Stuff.
0: Weird. Oh, do we have a, oh, I thought we had a message here. No, we don't.
2: That that really hooked me. I mean, that was that was kind of the the slam dunk on the whole deal.
0: Yeah, I do remember reading about that one too. Um, I think we've uh, the when you've been on all we've talked about is Academy. Have we talked about the like the paranormal in general? Oh, I know what I wanted to bring up early on. You said that uh, that when we're talking about the history of mutilations, or at least um, you know in the in. The, Probably right before the 1970s or at the beginning of them, you said that there was a period where there were rustlers, quote unquote, coming out in helicopters, and then something about hairy hominids. Yeah, what, what what's Bigfoot yeah. doing around cattle that, mutilation sites?
2: Well, this is something that David Perkins kind of stumbled on, and and you know totally uh, you know out of left field. Yeah. You know, he really. he spent hundreds of hours helping me research this book. I mean, god, I, it would not be half the book it is without, without his very important input. That's one of the reasons why, you know, I think a uh, a co-authored book with him is really important yeah. analyzing this book. But, you know, he started like shooting me articles about areas of high incidence uh... in the pre nineteen seventy five uh... year seventy five of course is when this whole thing really took off but in seventy two seventy one uh... seventy three there were areas that later became real hot spots for mutilation activity had reports of hairy hominids like the momo creature in around Ells- ellsbury and parts of uh... eastern missouri uh, I think Lawton, Oklahoma, had this wild man that was running around in in a a pair of pants that were two sizes too small and a plaid shirt. (laughs) Wow, sounds like the whole and he was leaping off, you know, second floor balconies and racing across the street and tons of police reports and and stuff. Uh, And in other areas in Montana, Keith Wolverton had a a number of, of very theatrical bigfoot sightings really was it did he write him up in that
0: mystery stalks the prairie yeah
2: yeah wow. oh yeah and uh in the, in that uh i do quote uh, quote some of the passages in there in fact one report uh a a girl you know she was a teenager uh she saw this thing out, outside her house and fired a gun in the air and the creature acted like she had shot it and it theatrically like clutched itself and fell to the ground and, you know it was like Going through, like, oh, you just shot me, and then it got up, brushed itself off, and walked away. (laughs) Yeah, you. Yeah, I think you. That's stuff that really makes me uh, just. uh, It just makes my day when I read stuff like that.
0: Yeah, the. uh, I told that story to people, and it creeped them out. (laughs) And they said it, and then somebody wrote in it. Was that like a. Didn't you say it was like a robot type entity, or it's something that looked like. that moved like one?
2: well yeah there's there's been uh reports of entities the the clearview case, for instance in Colorado was a case where you know these what appeared to be like air force officers emerged from a landed saucer a guy had had some mutilations uh, fairly close to the air force academy actually and oh, okay. uh and he the rancher had seen these weird blinking boxes uh in trees on his property and and he couldn't figure out you know what the hell they were he was going down to get his mail or he was going somewhere and he saw this thing and he he thought what the f- hell is that you know he comes back and it's gone and then this this craft lands and these guys come out and and they say something to the effect of you know well don't worry about those hairy guys uh, uh, they're under our control look and he points over and there's one there's a bigfoot standing under a tree holding one of these blinking boxes this like technological device against his chest huh wait it, when did this happen where what uh 79 this is the clearview case i covered in the book and uh, he says they're under our control see and he had this kind of buck rogers type belt on and he hits a button and <laughs> the creature like kind of spasms drops to the ground the body drops the box and then he hits another button and it comes to, grabs a box and stands there again. I mean, some bizarre, <laughs> bizarre yeah. cases. And there's there's more than a few, uh, you know, and I do, uh, we do cover them uh, extensively. And, you know, again, I have to tip my hat to David Perkins for digging up these newspaper articles and, and uh, you know, obscure, you know, bits of Arcana from uh, databases that uh, I've been able to coalesce into this book.
0: Yeah. Uh my sister in law wrote a uh, uh message, she's saying uh uh Chris might be interested in a book by William and Mary Anthropo a William and Mary anthropologist, How Animals Grieve.
2: Yeah. I, I have heard of that book. I have not read it. But um yeah, uh, animals I think have a more evolved social structure than uh the average we, person yeah, would, we give them would credit. suspect yeah you know, which in, includes obviously you know uh grieving so the th- it's almost suggestive of of some sort of emotional uh reaction to adverse conditions the death of of, of uh progeny that sort of thing and yeah. uh, there's there's cases uh you know from ontario and and from uh in in other cases in Canada where uh you know we have cows that that give birth to calves. The cows are find, found mutilated, and the calves are nowhere to be found. And then, you know, animals are surrounding them and, and like caring for the calf. And then, then the calf shows up mutilated. It's almost like they knew something was going to happen. Um, you know, there's there are few and far between, and they're not well documented in some some cases because people don't normally think about. You know, this particular element when they're dealing with the loss of, you know, an investment, you know, which is basically what we're dealing with here is ranchers losing, you know, a thousand bucks at a pop uh, yeah. when they find yeah. an animal strangely slain. So more than that, I think their, 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 their focus is on, on more, you know, financial concerns. But, but every, every so often you see these kind of weird descriptions of animal behavior, uh, especially among cows, and cows have been bred to be dumb. I mean, I I, I had a, a job, you know, every year in, in the San Luis Valley helping a my drummer's dad, uh, you know, brand uh, D de, uh, horn and inoculate his animals. And I, I, I'll tell you, it's bizarre when you stick a needle, a big old hunk and, in, in, you know, vaccination needle into into a cow and to see how long it takes for the for the sensation of the pain to go up to the brain. There's like this this you know, three second delay before the animal realizes that it it just like <laughs> ow, you know, it takes it a while. And so so cows aren't known for their, you know, being real alert and and and, and intelligent. But they do seem, I think, in a herd, the herd behavior uh tends to be quicker. It responds quicker. It has uh it seems to have purpose, it seems to have some sort of emotional quality to it. And this is something that you rarely uh, hear about, especially in in the cattle mutilation realm. Uh, The reason why I used a Pyrenees dog as my lead investigator on my cases is very simple. I think animals can tune in on certain elements of an environment that people don't normally pick up on. And that's why whenever I went out on cases, I had my brother's Pyrenees with me. And I would always introduce him to the case first and, and really carefully observe how he went around the site, how he responded to the carcass, where he he found possible evidence of coyotes because he'd always pee there, you know, he'd always urinate and mark his territory where the coyotes did, and it, it was very simple for me to find out where the coyotes came in, uh, you know, how they approached the animal if they did, um, and and you know it would take a long time for me to to you know ascertain these uh, these details just by Walking the site myself or with other people, Cato would go directly to these areas and, and alert me to where the coyotes were, uh, where they urinated, how they, uh, you know, how he responds to the site uh, gave me an incredible amount of information before I even got out of the car.
0: Yeah, now, what, what other, I I didn't realize that you had the dog along with you on a lot of these. Oh yeah, what that else did he, was... what, else, uh, what else were you able to ascertain besides where coyotes had showed up?
2: Well, uh, most importantly, whether he would approach the carcass, uh, and there were very few cases that he wouldn't approach. Uh, most of the time, he had no fear. It was like, oh, a dead animal. Let me go check it out. And I'd, I'd see where he'd sniff first, whether he would go, you know, to where it was obvious that you know scavengers had maybe chewed on it a little bit versus the the high strange area, you know, with cut hair follicles or that sort of thing. How he would, would react to the actual carcass. Uh, at least, you know, in my estimation, really clued me in on the, uh, the potential high strange nature of, of a particular case.
0: Right. So it, it was something that was way out of the ordinary. He would just he would wouldn't even go up to her or He'd go yeah, up and it, say, that's you know, it, forget and
2: it. And was only just, you know, a handful of cases out of all the cases that I actually went out on.
0: So, like, for example, if he just you get, let him out of the car and he ran halfway there and ran back and just sat in the car or went somewhere else, what would you find?
2: Well, we would always try to approach downwind so he would have a full uh, olfactory uh, yeah. experience before he even, you know, approached the animal. So, we, we, you know, if, if at all possible, we would try to approach uh, downwind so that he would, you know, be able to ascertain, you know, the environment he was walking into. Uh, there were a few cases that we tried because we, we knew it was high strange and we would approach from the upwind side to see what he would do. And in one case, he wouldn't approach it. He just he he shied away. He he wouldn't get within fifty feet of it.
0: And what 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 was there at the site?
2: Uh, that particular one was a, a white horse uh, out of a herd of dark bay and chestnut colored horses. It was the only white horse in horse in the in the herd. Uh, it had obvious uh, cut hair follicles. He did not not want to approach that until we went and approached it, and then he felt that it was okay, and then he would approach it. Oh, okay. So, you know, again this is all, you know, I I I'm kind of inventing the wheel here uh in terms of trying to come up with out of the box investigative techniques uh you know uh, new and different ways to try to approach uh gathering intel on 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 these cases and there's not enough creative thinking in the field and unfortunately uh in one sense of the word, but fortunately, we don't have as many cases now as, as we did uh, back in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Yeah. So, yeah. Has it, has it trailed off quite a bit? It has, but I, I, I think one thing that I've really been able to ascertain is the higher strange the case is, the less likely it is to be reported. In other words, the real freaky ones are like dragged off. They are buried. They're burnt. They're thrown on a bone pile. Nobody ever hears about them. Cause the rancher just doesn't want to deal with it out of sight, out of mind. Yeah. The cases where helicopters are seen, uh, strangers in the field, some sort of, you know, criminal kind of, you know, as perceived by the rancher, if there's some sort of criminal activity, then he feels, I think more comfortable to come forward, talk to the law enforcement agencies, uh, you know, file reports, maybe talk to the media, but The really strange cases are the ones that are least likely to be reported. I can pretty much, uh, you can take that one to the bank.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's very easy to figure out why that happens. They just, you know, like you said, out of sight, out of mind. The other thing is like, what the hell are we supposed to do with this? One, you know, we have no idea what happened. Two, it's exceedingly strange and kind of scary. And three, what is anybody going to do about it?
2: Exactly. There, There is no, you know, the the deputy sheriff will come out, kick it a couple times to make sure it's dead, snap a few photographs and say, hey, we'll get back to it if we figure something out. And, and because, you know, for 35, 40, 45, 50 years, you know, this thing has just burbled underneath, uh, you know, the surface of the ranching community. Ranchers are smart enough now to know that all they're doing is opening up Pandora's box for a world of hurt if they, you know, and grief if they if they go public with these things. And generally the ones that do go public with this stuff, uh, especially in southern Colorado, tend to be kinda questionable uh types that maybe want some publicity or you know, have this kind of weird sort of, you know, idea that, you know, they want to, you know, promote some sort of foregone conclusion. And a lot of these uh, cases that have been occurring, not not all by any stretch, but but a number of cases that have been occurring in the last four or five years have been obvious to me, obvious scavenger, uh, mundane, you know, misidentified scavenger action or purposefully misidentified scavenger action uh, in a few cases. Uh, Just kind of a lust for publicity. Get you get your name in the paper. And unfortunately, uh, some investigators who go out there, they don't investigate the rancher. They're, they're solely concerned about the cow. Huh. I like to find out who this guy is. Has he ever been, you know, uh, maybe implicated in some insurance fraud, for instance? Uh, which, which is a, you know, it's kind of an element that isn't discussed much, but it is a, a possible explanation for some of these cases. Most of these animals are not insured, but a few of them are, and occasionally if an animal dies if it, you know if somebody can come up with a, a criminal uh you know scenario then there's a possibility they can get reimbursed for the cow uh it's really complicated you know yeah. and and investigators really need to cover their bases they need to do background uh checking on people We've had a number of cases in Southern Colorado that have been reported by ranchers that have questionable reputations in the ranching community where they live and uh none of this was ever even considered by the investigator uh in one you know, several several cases and and it it just was an uh it, it created a platform to promote foregone conclusions that we talked about before.
0: Yeah, it's um you, you you never know what you're getting into and uh, yeah, it's funny cuz nobody really checks up on the person. I never really thought about that. They're so interested in their agenda that whatever fits into that agenda, they're just going to accept and you know, and anything that just sounds weird just it just falls off the table for people.
2: Exactly. Well, some of these cases that have occurred down around the Trinidad area feature ranchers that have very very questionable reputations in their ranching community and uh, are not taken seriously by by their fellow ranchers. And, uh, you know, you could toss around terms like grandstanding, uh, you know, just lust for publicity, those sorts of things. Oh, uh, are you going to bring a TV crew down? You know, that sort of thing. And, you know, I, I, I think it it really, if you want to be, taken seriously as an investigator as a researcher you have to cover your bases you have to do the legwork you have to make the phone calls you have to look into people's backgrounds you know a classic example of that in the ufo realm would be the tim edwards uh, salida footage uh, from 1995 that incredible daylight footage uh, that he was able to to snap i stayed away from that case for almost a year because i was checking him out yeah. You know, I did not want to get involved. As soon as the media gets involved or some other investigator gets involved, I don't I don't enter into the picture. I start doing the you know, the backgrounding and, and, and look into into whomever the the persons of interest are in this uh particular you know realm and and, and really Try to get a, a, a psych profile on, on these people. Right. And the the vast majority of the cases that I investigated did not have anything to do with any sort of questionable agendas on the on the fact that the ranchers, you know, in, in terms of the ranchers' uh, motivations, uh, you know, 99%. Only a few cases really came up where, you know, I felt that there was some you know, questionable motives uh, at work. And and these ten, tended to be after the media got involved and then, you know, the ball got rolling, you know, publicity-wise. Yeah. And then people start, you know, kind of glomming onto the thing. But, you know, when a case comes out of nowhere, boom, and, you know, a guy reports uh, an animal mutilated, you, you have to kind of wonder, well, you know, it's kind of weird. Usually these cases aren't standalone. Um, so... You know, I, I I think any investigator or aspiring investigator should be really wary of uh, cases that come out of the blue like that. And uh, you well, know, you had I, an
0: added uh, uh, bonus uh, when you were doing your investigation because you lived out there, so everybody kind of knew you. Not kind of, they did know you.
2: Well, they knew who I was, but most importantly, law enforcement uh, yeah. trusted me, and, and 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 I was called in. Uh, to a lot of my cases by by law enforcement and 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 you know they kind of did it because they they didn't want to you know tie up their time investigating something they knew darn well wasn't going to get solved and uh, and they would say hey you know we heard about this uh, you know if if you still got the funding to do plant and soil sample testing forensic testing man it would be great if you could help out with this and you know it it's creating a um, Community, maybe. Well, a community, but also creating a, a sense network. Trust, yeah. uh, you know, with the ranching community, you have to be in a position where you're not going to be publicizing these things to, uh, for self-aggrandizement, touting off your theories to the media, bringing in TV sh- uh, crews and all this. The, the only cases that I ever approached, uh, you know, where the rancher, you know, I would say, hey, you know, I've got this crew that really wants to talk about this particular mystery. You know, I've known you for X amount of years. Uh, are would you be willing to talk about this? And I always put it, you know, up to them. It's it's their judgment call whether they want to have their faces plastered all over the TV and stuff. And 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 I, you know, I really, <laughs> I really shy away from, you know, trying to approach the media and, and touting these things as as and, and, and being a mystery monger, you know, for lack of a better term. Uh, and unfortunately, we do have a number of of uh, cases that have occurred recently that that really feature a lot of uh, you know questionable mystery mongering. But that's not to say all cases uh, that have occurred. The the case in Nebraska, what a couple of years ago, a year and a half ago, where the animal was found with its head in a hole. That one really kind of threw me for a loop. It's like of all the places for the animal to die why would it have its head totally inside a hole in the ground it it just was bizarre um so you know there are still high strange cases going on i think they're very very sel- seldom reported to law enforcement never reported to the media and you really have to have a network of sources that that hear about these things and are able to give you the kinds of information that allow you to approach ranchers in a way that especially if you're an outsider to the community you need to approach them in a way that puts their minds at ease, uh, in terms of potentially stigmatizing them among amongst their, uh, you know, community members. And, uh, and that's important. Ranching communities are, are pretty close knit. They don't, really like to you know stick their heads you know above the crowd um uh, yeah and it's really difficult for an outsider to come in and expect to you know gain all the kinds of information they need to make any sort of determination and uh it, it just the whole thing is self-nullifying that's what it boils down to this is ingenious the way this thing is set up uh you know it's just every way you turn you've got real major hurdles to uh to leap over, and that's why I think this book finally finally uh there's a book there where you can if you're at all interested in ritual blood sacrifice the, the you know the role of livestock in human human communities uh the role of of how we sanctify and 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 how we have a ceremonious relationship with with the planet including the other uh you know creatures on it you know i really try to encompass all this when looking at something as mysterious as this and it's it's a true mystery i don't you know i'll i'll debate any skeptic or debunker and 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 slam dunk them with the kinds of data that that are in this book i mean there's no question in my mind that this is a true mystery it's yeah. not as as potentially pervasive as some people think It 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 doesn't really conform to a lot of foregone conclusions. It's very complex, but but it's definitely a subject that I think Western culture has got to deal with. We we are not going to be using cattle as as a source of protein, uh, you know, for too much longer. Uh, They're just absolutely detrimental to the environment. I mean, just the environmental impact of of cattle on this planet. is Yeah, just by having temp-
0: this many people eating them,
2: yeah, before it was kind of sustainable, if, if you can call it that. It's not, man. As soon as you pen these animals up, they're supposed to move across the environment. If you allow them to move and migrate and move back and forth, they're really good for the environment. But if you stick them in you know, a foot of feces inside a feedlot, you know 10 15 20,000 of these animals uh you got to pump them full of of antibiotics you have to pump them full of growth hormones to get them in and out as quickly as possible without without them getting sick and this is all being passed along to uh humanity uh you know uh, in the food chain and and this is this is a huge subject that's going to have to be dealt with soon we probably
0: ran out of time but i had one more question what is your hope where this is going to go in the future? What do you think another generation or uh, a new group of uh, or individuals, even, of investigators could do with this? Where could they possibly go with it?
2: Well, I think it's important for, number one, the ranching community, law enforcement, and um, the scientific community needs to be brought together and be on the same page along with civilian investigators We need, you know, amazing strides were made in the 70s and 80s uh, to network, you know, these various groups together. Uh, But I think more work needs to be done. I think the educational process is obviously really crucial. Um, You know, all those groups, the ranching community, law enforcement, scientific community, academia, civilian investigators, we all need uh, to be educated, up to speed on what we're dealing with. And 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 talk with one another, uh, you know. Be willing to to dovetail your efforts with with others and and network and and keep people, you know, uh, up to speed on what's going on. I I think just communication uh, is is crucial. And if we can get by the stigma of uh, oh you're the dead cow guy, that sort of <laughs> attitude,
0: yeah,
2: um, it, it needs to fall away. And God forbid, you know, we should all of a sudden start seeing because of nuclear radiation washing ashore in the Pacific, uh, allegedly. You know, if we start seeing a bunch of cases on the West Coast, uh, David Perkins' uh, theory is uh, oh, yeah, <laughs> a lot, yeah, a lot, a lot more uh, viable.
0: <laughs> yeah, the fact that we haven't really seen any might be an indicator of something.
2: Uh, that's true. Meaning, yeah,
0: meaning yeah. that the scaremongering may, might not be uh, well-founded yet.
2: Um, well, that's true, you know, and there's some, uh, there's some people that think that a lot of this uh, hyperbole around Fukushima may be uh, a little too much too soon, but if we start seeing a rash of of cattle deaths along the, uh, you know, the Pacific Coast, yeah. where they traditionally do not occur.
0: Yeah, there's very uh, few.
2: Yeah, it, it, there have been a, a number, but, uh, you know, and I do detail them out in the book, but but again this I, I, to me this is a really good litmus test for the uh the uranium sort of you know radiation theory uh yeah. I'm, I'm just kind of wondering about that.
0: Okay, uh Chris I I won't keep you up any longer although yeah it's one of the few times I've actually talked to somebody who's in the same time zone now because Arizona's <laughs> in our time zone. Yeah. So I'm not keeping you up too late. But well, um, i have
2: to do an archaeological tour around the Verde Valley here in the morning so Oh I, okay, okay.
0: But, oh, uh, you, uh, now I gotta. We gotta come up and visit, so you can. Uh, we can tag along <laughs> on one of your tours.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Be good. Well, I work for you know a really good uh, a tour company, but for you, Greg.
0: <laughs> well, you, you have to. Next great. time if, you come if out, you if guys you're...
2: come out anytime you want to come out. I'll take you around, and show you some. I went to a place today that was just mind blowing. I did a, a really cool hike and found this, the most bizarre place uh there's gas bubbles that popped out of these igneous intrusions and it looked like a place on some sci-fi planet it's the coolest freaking set for a sci-fi movie all you need to do is spray paint all the cactus like orange or purple or something
0: yeah what's that place outside of los alamos um not Bandelier. there's another place where their cliffs look like that they look like bubbling oatmeal or something
2: yeah, there's a bunch of places. Uh my favorite is the Wheeler Geologic Zone, uh, that's near the headwaters of the Rio Grande. That is the it looks like huge formations of cubensis mushrooms. <laughs> Just amazing. <laughs> and all all like ready to pick except they're two hundred, three hundred feet tall.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, I gotta get out there. Yeah. <laughs>
2: All right, Chris. Hey, thanks got so much. You an airport, you know, like an uh, eighth of a mile away. That's dude. right.
0: You have an airport there. Yeah, well, it's right, it's right a, up
2: the hill, man. I, they fly right over my house. Yeah, you know it.
0: what? It's cheaper to take a uh, commercial airplane, <laughs> uh, <laughs> actually. But, quite, but but um, when I start going doing more cross countries of more than like a couple hundred miles, yeah, Arizona northern Arizona is probably one of the first areas I'm going to come to. Yeah. Um, I would like to fly around, you know, Sedona for for example. Oh yeah, oh, yeah you know? absolutely. So anyway, uh, Chris, uh, one, thanks so much for being on the show.
2: And Well, thanks uh, for having me, Greg. It's all, like I said, my favorite show. Uh, anytime you want me, I'm there. All right. and You know what? Sometime
0: we'll do a show, and we won't talk about cattle mutilations at all.
2: Okay. Well, we've had a few of those. but uh... I think
0: we have, or maybe not even paranormal stuff. Just talk about archaeology and about the Southwest and about, oh, you know. Yeah. You living in it for so long and your impressions of being, you know, transplanted. Yeah. But, you you know, you're basically native. You've been there most of your life now, I think.
2: Well, um, it's, let's half of, see, more 23 than half. years, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's been a while.
0: And because uh, I'm always up for talking to people about uh, anything else on the show just to see if I can hold my audience. Like, oh, he's not talking about UFOs. Forget it. So. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, I know the feeling.
0: And that and uh, how uh, do I have to order a copy of the book?
2: no uh as soon as i get uh, as soon as I get all my orders filled, uh you uh, obviously are on on the short list to get your own own copy
0: okay, because I can't even remember what I wrote anymore, and I want to look at the i want to look at the final form, and what I saw it, it didn't have any illustrations in it, or hardly any of them.
2: oh yeah, yeah, no there's there's tons of pictures uh including the Pennsylvania cave creature, this weird scorpion excellent. Claws with a skeleton, bizarre.
0: All right, a, uh, like a, uh, crypto And some porno. pictures
2: of Linda Howe when she was, like, uh, in her 30s.
0: I First time I met Linda Howe was at the Roswell uh, 1997, just by accident. Uh, remember,
2: um, did you go? No, I, I wasn't there. I, I actually spoke there in 99. That was okay. my only time I ever went to Roswell. I, yeah, I just... I, I, I went with some... Broke f- out in hives.
0: Oh, really? I went with some friends. Whitley Strieber spoke at the uh, Army Airfield hangar. Right. Right during a huge well, rainstorm. the storm. 50th anniversary. Yeah, it was the 50th anniversary. That was
2: about the last place I'd ever go.
0: Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I, I had to. Jim Mosley was there. He was a lot of fun. Anyway, oh. we I got out of my car at the hangar, and Linda Howe's there in an evening dress, and she said, I... <laughs> Could you let, help me across this field of like you know tumbleweeds, rocks, and everything? Because she was in high heels, so she took my arm and I led her into the hangar. <laughs> that was my first experience with Linda Howe. <laughs> I love it. Well, Linda! Linda,
2: bless her, bless her heart. She trained me to be an investigator on the phone. I love it. Really? Uh, yeah, I don't agree with
0: all, all kinds of things that she says and does. Um, yeah, but that experience at that point i was just like oh man yeah you know
2: it was, yeah. it was
0: just so funny it's like nope you know nobody knows who i am i'm not oh, i'm a nobody and linda i knew who linda how was at that
2: point. too bad somebody wasn't there videotaping that scene
0: it was it was very strange i mean I, I was kind of i was a little starstruck
2: you know so yeah well at the time i didn't know that she was any anybody and important but man she uh she Gave me a crash course, of, you know, just a, a series of very long phone calls. She, yeah, pretty much trained me how to, inve- you know, to to interview people. She's very good at interviewing people, and, and I, I got yeah, a lot exactly. of my, I my tricks and, yeah. and and stuff and, and pointers from her. And I'll yeah. I'll always be grateful for that.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's her background. Anyway, uh, thanks so much, Chris. Talk to you soon, cool, and, yeah, and I'll have this posted. Uh, I Can't wait to get out there.
2: I should be out there in June, uh, possibly July. So we'll uh, touch bases.
0: Yeah, please. And I'll take you on the weird L.A. tour that I take people on. when they. Oh,
2: that would be great. I'd love it. All
0: right. All right. Thanks so much, Chris. Talk to you soon.
2: Okay, cool, man. Bye. Bye.
0: All right. Chris O'Brien. Uh, the new book is Stalking the Herd. Basically, the only book you need to read on cattle mutilations at this point. Or maybe the first one. The and Mysterioso ends its broadcast day.